But before the pandemic hit, Portland was poised to become one of the world's world-class cities. From the Coin Podcast Network Studios in Portland, Oregon, this is Six Questions with Emily Burris and Ian Costello. I know the calendar has been set for like a few uh, thousand years, but I'm just wondering, like, <laughs> uh, well, in our case, at least a couple hundred. But like, who decided that Thanksgiving was going to go so close to Christmas? It's like we wait ten months for of the any year. holiday. Yeah, and then we have barely a month sometimes <laughs> to like have any Christmas stuff. Got your Christmas wish list put together yet? Hmm. No, honestly, I've been so busy trying to like take care of some Christmas shopping for other people and just knock out the the shopping and the and the gift list. I haven't really thought about what, uh, if anything, I would offer up as gift ideas, which has made some of my family members quite annoyed. <laughs> How about you? Um. Well, I I I'd like to commend you for thinking of others first. Of course. Um. I'm generally not as good at that. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, matter of fact, right before you walked in, I was finishing shopping, um, grabbing the last couple things for my wife, uh, that I think I'm going to get her anyway. I'll find something else along the way. Uh Um, she does a really good job of shopping for herself and then telling me that I bought her something for Christmas, which is, I guess it takes some of the thought and the surprise out of it, but it does take some of the time commitment away too, which is it nice. It does, and the stress of right. just knowing, like, is this the right size? Did I get something that she's going to like? Well, and you've got a little one now, so Christmas is all about the kiddos at your oh, house, I'm sure. Oh, my God. Uh, we usually have a pretty full car going home for our road trip on Christmas. We make the same drive every year. Mm-hmm. We usually have a pretty full car between me, my wife, my daughter, the dog, all of our stuff, all of our cold weather stuff, all the presents and that kind of thing. And this year we just started shipping stuff in late August, just <laughs> getting it there because it's basically like we have to show up with the smallest suitcases we can uh-huh. because two grandmas and two grandpas are going to load us up with so much, so much <laughs> stuff. So much stuff. Um, That it's going to be a full car. Yep. It, it's going to be a really full car. The dog may be riding in the Thule rack on top. <laughs> She'll be okay up there, I'm sure. Of course. I mean, it's been so warm lately, you know? Yeah, right, right. As long as, you know, it doesn't hit 40 below in Montana like it sometimes does while we're there. Oh, gosh. So comfortable. <laughs> but the uh, the coin fleece is nice, but it really doesn't do much to cut the wind and the terrible cold that is the Montana High Line. <laughs> the coin fleece barely does enough some days to cut through the chill of the newsroom. So, yeah. Blankets and space heaters in the newsroom, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, how about your co-anchors? You going to get them anything? Of course. I uh, I always have to find some fun little worker gifts. Uh, it's usually some some snacks and drinks because we're all big fans of snacks of and drinks. Snacks and drinks on yes. the morning show. <laughs> um, but yeah, that is. I think that is the one part of my holiday gifting that I still have yet to do. I've knocked out most of the family gifts, and uh, yeah, now I gotta now I gotta take care of the coworkers, the work husband, all of that. Okay, let's talk lists. Uh, you've got Travis, uh-huh. you got Kelly, you got Ken. Mm-hmm. Who's going to be of that run the most difficult to shop for? Probably Kelly. Why? 
because she already has a bunch of really cool little gadgets and things. And anything that she's interested in, chances are she already knows way more about it than I do. <laughs> so I don't know what to get her. You know, it's like baking stuff. She's already got a kitchen full of gadgets. Rock climbing stuff. I'd, I'd get her the wrong carabiner. I don't know. You know, uh, she's a she's a tough one, and she's good at getting gifts. So. She, like, oh, she's, that, she's a good gifter. So there's a pressure. I get stressed about it. Yeah, that's it. a lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ken, I, I think, is is easy to get. He's a, he's a simple man. He likes his bourbon. He likes his cigars. Uh, so I've got some options. Yeah. <laughs> he, is, uh, he is a simple man uh, with, a, with an incredible story. And it is something that for the first time in all the time I've been working with him, I really got to drill down with him in this week's interview, and we'll get into the interview here in a minute, but it is weird to work with somebody for six or seven or eight years and then sit in a podcast studio with them and have an hour and 20 minute conversation and realize you may not have known them. Wow. Um, Yeah. There was a lot I learned along the way why somebody just packs up and moves to Trinidad. Uh I I had never known that happened. I came across it in his bio. And was like, whoa, why, why did he just go to Trinidad? So we get into that. Um, but I got to tell you, I and I told him off the top, and you'll hear it. Um, I've interviewed a lot of people in my career. And that was the first time in a long time I was actually nervous. Yeah. I And I don't, I think it's because when you're talking to another journalist, um, and you're talking to somebody with a reporting style and an interviewing style that you try and emulate, or that you're inspired by, then you have to be extra good and really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll hear it, it's interesting the the reaction I got from him when I told him that I was a little bit more nervous than normal. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like he 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 achieved a superstar status in my head, and I had to tell him that I was going to probably shake and spit up on myself a little bit while I was talking to him. <laughs> I mean, try co-anchoring next to the guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a great conversation. It's a way to get to know Ken in a way that uh, I had never got a chance to know Ken. And I don't think a lot of people out there who know Ken, who welcome Ken into their homes on a, on a daily basis. Yes. They don't know him either because there is the news anchor side that you see on TV. Right. And there's also kind of the laughing, jovial guy you see on TV. What you see on TV came from so many years of so many different experiences some good, some very painful, and we get into a lot of that. And just to provide, I think, a very important look, uh, kind of peeling back the curtain on Portland a little bit, mm-hmm. hearing how some of his experiences here are very different than mine and yours. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and the one, obviously, big elephant in the room being, you know, he's black and he's one of the few black media well-known media people in town yeah and 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 that's a a hard place to be but it was a great conversation and uh you're going to learn a lot about ken along the way and uh hope you enjoy it i gotta say um we've done i don't know 14 or 15 of these now and uh i've obviously spent my career interviewing a lot of different people. Um, I'm more nervous than normal. I woke up this morning a little nervous to to interview you. And uh, I think it's a little bit because um, I don't get to talk to another journalist very often. (laughs) So I felt like my questions really had to be on point. 
Well, I feel that my answers have to be on point, so <laughs> I'm as nervous as you are. Uh, Ken, since I met you in midwinter of 2015, when we first started working together, you've been part of the morning routine for thousands of people in the Portland area every day. But I want to start long before you were anchoring Coin6 News this morning and ask you, what were mornings like for you growing up? What was life like at home for a young Ken body? Well, it depends on how young you go. Uh, <laughs> obviously, when I was school age, then uh, getting up in the morning was uh, getting ready for school, eating breakfast. Uh, for a time when I was young, I worked as a stock boy at a local supermarket. So I had to get up pretty early in order to do the stocking of the supermarket. I also had a stint as a newspaper boy where I was able to uh, get up and, and go and deliver papers early in the morning, get chased by dogs. In fact, the last <laughs> dog that chased me convinced me that I did not have a future in newspaper delivery <laughs> uh, because I just didn't want to deal with the stress. Was that your first news job, delivering newspapers? Now that I think about it, I never thought it that way, but uh, that probably was delivering the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle in Rochester, New York, uh, sometimes in snowdrifts. I felt like uh, what they say about uh, the mailman, you know, neither snow <laughs> nor sleet nor hail. Uh, those papers had to get delivered. Uh, fortunately, most newspapers get delivered online now, so yeah, true. people <laughs> don't have to go out in the uh, elements in order to deliver them. Less dog chasing online, too. Much less dog chasing, <laughs> yes. Uh, I wonder, Ken, I'm a generic white dude who grew up generically middle class. If I would have grown up in your neighborhood around, around about the same time and gone to your high school, how different do you think our lives would have been? I think our lives would have been quite different. I grew up in a mostly a black and Puerto Rican neighborhood in uh, Rochester, New York, which is my hometown. And it was pretty much ethnically separated, even though it was relatively diverse, uh, having African-Americans, Puerto Ricans and white people in the neighborhood. Uh, it was pretty much dominated by the people of color in the neighborhood myself. The school where I went to middle school, it was Madison High School. It would be uh, equivalent to what Jefferson is in North okay. Portland. It was that type of neighborhood, that type of school. However, I ended up going to a Catholic high school for the last uh, three years of my high school experience. That was quite different. I ended up uh, getting on a bus every morning, uh, going to a suburb called Greece, Greece, New York, right outside <laughs> of Rochester. And my high school was Cardinal Mooney High School. And uh, the Catholic school that had the most African-Americans that we had uh, while I was there, during the three years I was there, were 12. And there were 1,500 kids in the school. Uh, most years, there were five or six of us. So I always viewed going to high school almost like going to work and then coming back to the neighborhood where my life actually was. So I don't regret any of that. It gave me a well-rounded experience as a young man. And I think it prepared me for where I ended up in terms of college, which was at Cornell University and Ivy League University. So I think that my life experience and my educational experience at a young age prepared me for where I am today. 
anybody who has spent, I don't know, more than a few minutes with you, either working or hanging out, knows that music is a huge part of your life. You have been very vocal and active about the local community, the local music community here in Portland. But where did that start? Where does your love of music come from? I think it just comes from the fact that rhythms have always intrigued me. So, you know, the the beat of music, uh, when I was young, I, I grew up during the Motown era and listened to my parents playing uh, the Supremes and the Temptations and uh, those kind of groups back in the day. And it just kind of always made me feel better to listen to great music. When I moved to Portland, when I found out that there was such a vibrant music community here, especially in uh, jazz and blues, I just glommed onto it. Got to know a lot of the musicians in town, uh, went to a lot of shows, and uh, it's always been something that's been part of my life. Uh, I was in a I say I was in a band when I was young, <laughs> but uh, I, w- I was just playing around with it now that I think back on it. But it was something that I always wanted to be involved in. I always wanted to be involved in music. I always wanted to be involved in athletics, too. I was an athlete when I was coming up. So uh, those two things made my life really well-rounded. And uh, since I'm a little older now and my athletic career is behind me, <laughs> I figure that music would be something that I could uh, – stay with for the rest of my life, and that has proven to be the case. What instrument did you play? I started out with clarinet lessons, believe it or not. I actually played a clarinet not well for a while, uh, took piano lessons when I was a kid, and ended up just fooling around with a bass guitar one day and really liked that. You know, I liked the thump, thump, thump of the bass and just the the body and, and the gravity that it gave to the music that surrounded it. So I did that for a little while as well. Uh, eventually, I uh, got away from trying to play music, and I say trying, uh, and uh, <laughs> became a uh, radio guy. In college, I started playing music on the radio, and then my first job in broadcasting after college was at a radio station in my hometown of Rochester, New York. So I did the morning drive uh, as a news guy. I did a 10 to 2 midday shift as a DJ, and then from 2 to 4, I went back to the news guy uh, in the afternoons. So I've, I've had that, that background in me both ways for a long time. Your midday drive when you're playing music, what kind of music were you playing? I was playing R&B, I was playing jazz, uh, I was playing funk, you know, and that was what was popular at the time. And uh, it was Rochester's only black-owned radio station. In fact, the call letters were WDKX, and the D stood for Douglas, the K for King, and the X for Malcolm. So uh, it was uh, really a a good start for me to be in that environment, to be around other African Americans, and to be in in a radio station that was owned by an African-American, it really gave me a, a good background for not only the business, but the culture as well. Being surrounded by that many African-Americans and black coworkers, that had to be influential in just not necessarily the industry, but in convincing you that you could make it. Absolutely. No doubt about it. And I think that, you know, it, it gave me the sense of being able to bring something to the greater culture. It gave me a foundation for when I went out into uh, more diverse environments that I felt confident. 
uh, also going to a Catholic high school, going to an Ivy League university, I always felt that I could compete, that I was as good as anyone else as long as I applied myself and became that. So I think I've always had that, that confidence knowing that I could function in the greater society, even coming up with the background that I had. So you go from your hometown of Rochester, New York, to college at Cornell, where we find you reporting for the college radio station, as you mentioned it. When you think back on those early days in your journalism adventure, what do you remember? Is there any particular story that still stands out and may have had more influence on your career path than some of the other stories you covered? During my college days, uh, I think that there was the issue of affirmative action that really got to me um, and that we did report on uh, even at the college level. Uh, I refer to myself as an affirmative action baby, to tell you the truth. Uh, I would not have been able to afford to go to an Ivy League university without affirmative action. Academically, I was there. Extracurriculars, I was there. But Ivy League universities are expensive. And I happened to come up during a time when affirmative action was strong, and they were actually looking for students like me, students who were good academically, uh, students who were good athletes, uh, you know, students who could bring part of our culture to the campus environment. The downside of just coming in in an affirmative action setting was that many people thought, well, I, I won't say many. I would say there were a number of people who thought that the only reason I got into Cornell was because of affirmative action. And I go, uh, no, it wasn't academic. It wasn't in terms of the things that I did in high school. It was the money. Mm -hmm. it, it enabled me to go to an Ivy League university. So that was uh, uh, my affirmative action story. And I think that we dealt with those kind of issues even as students on campus. Cornell University was interesting in that a number of years before I started attending, I started in 1975, but in the late 1960s, a group of African-American students took over our main student hall, Willard Strait Hall. They were demanding uh, more respect for the black students that were on campus at that time, uh, for Cornell to bring in more black students. And as a result of those protests, which were armed, they took over Willard Strait Hall uh, with guns and had to negotiate with the staff uh, and the administration in order to leave Willard Strait Hall once they took it over. But it enabled us in later years, and I benefited from this, to uh, have an African Studies Center, to have uh, uh, Afrocentric curriculum, and ultimately to have a, uh, a dorm called Ujima on campus uh, where black students could stay together. There was some controversy about that because people thought that that was segregation within the campus. Uh, from my standpoint, it gave us a home base. It gave us a place where we could go and feel like we were part of the university experience but still interact with other African Americans. Because without Ujima, we would have been dispersed all over campus and all over Ithaca, New York. And, and that would have made my college experience much less rich than it was. In doing my research for this interview, I found one sentence in your bio on the COIN website that caught me a little bit by surprise because in all the time we've worked together, I had never heard anything about it. And I don't want to really want to go down the road of making you uncomfortable or anything you don't want to talk about here. But I'm curious, 
Why did you go to Trinidad and how long were you there? My college sweetheart was from Trinidad. She was Trinidadian. She was a year behind me. Uh, so when I was a senior, she was a junior. So I graduated, went back to Rochester to start my career while she was still at Cornell. We had a uh, daughter together while we were uh, in college. In fact, she was uh, pregnant her senior year, and she ended up graduating, uh, which was an incredible feat under the circumstances. Uh, incredible student she was. And she wanted to go back to her hometown. She wanted to go back to her home country, which was San Juan, Trinidad, West Indies. And uh, for people who don't know where Trinidad is, it's the southernmost Caribbean island. It's right off the coast of Venezuela, Trinidad and Tobago. So uh, she wanted to go back and I wanted to be with her. So I ended up moving to Trinidad. I was working in both radio and television at the time. I had gotten my first job in television as a weekend reporter at the ABC affiliate in Rochester. Uh, she graduated, uh, worked for a year in Rochester in the, in the hotel business, and said, uh, Ken, it's too cold and I want to go back home. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, hey, well, I want to be with you, so let's, uh, let's go to Trinidad. And it turned out that it was one of the best decisions I had ever made. Got to be immersed in a different culture, a different country uh, at a young phase in my life. Trinidad is, is really a diverse country in the sense that it has been colonized by just about everybody. Uh, so it, it was once, I believe, a British commonwealth. It was uh, settled by the Spaniards. Uh, there's a big Indian influence there from India. And there were quite a few British people who were there. So very diverse country, small country, but they had oil. Hmm. So people were living uh, pretty well in, in Trinidad. Of course, like any country, there were areas of poverty and that type of thing. But in general, uh, the standard of living in Trinidad was, was very good. And as an American being there, uh, my best friend there was uh, from Britain. And I had another best friend who was, uh, who was Trinidadian who grew up there. And it was just a fantastic experience. I just ran out of money. <laughs> so I had to come back to the United States and get a job. And that's when I moved to, uh, to Portland because this is where my folks were. Okay, so here we are on the Ken Body timeline, and we've made it to the mid-1980s. You've arrived in Portland. What were your early impressions of living in this city no doubt, a city that was obviously very different than the Portland we know today. I'll answer that in a couple of different ways, because it was very different from what I had experienced in life up to that point. It was the first time, honestly, that I had been in an environment that was so overwhelmingly white. I, I told you about my, my college experience at Cornell uh, but we did have Ujima. We did have the Black Dorm. We did have kind of our neighborhood, even within the campus. When I came to Portland, it was uh, it took me a while to get used to the lack of ethnic diversity here. It really did. And uh, it probably took about maybe a year, a year and a half before I felt comfortable. And what enabled me to feel comfortable was just the absolute stunning beauty of the state. To be able to be in a city that, that was clean and vibrant, to be able to, within an hour 
uh, be in the mountains uh, a little more than an hour or to be at the coast, to drive a couple of hours and be in a desert, uh, to be in the forest, uh, to have water that surrounded you all, all the time. I don't think people really realize how special it is out here just from a uh, geographic standpoint. There are very few places in the country that offer everything that the Portland area offers and Oregon in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very attractive. Uh, now, let's compare what I've just described to what we're seeing today. It actually hurts me to see the state that Portland, especially the city of Portland, is finds itself in right now. I never thought that I would walk down a city street and see the the amount of garbage that I see now, to see the number of homeless people that are just living on the street. I mean, camp cities, basically, homeless camp cities have emerged. It's really disappointing because we could see this coming, at least in my opinion. We were headed in this direction, and now it's going to be hard to to backtrack and reverse back to where we were to at least get to a starting point where we can can see the light at the end of the tunnel for what this city's potential is. Before the pandemic hit, the pandemic exacerbated all of this, no doubt about it. But before the pandemic hit, Portland was poised to become one of the world's world-class cities. Mm-hmm. It really was. In terms of the, the people moving here, the, in terms of the investment that was happening here, uh, the projects that were on the books that big companies wanted to do here. And then all of a sudden, the pandemic hit. We had the, uh, the riots after the George Floyd murder. And, you know, there's a lot of debate about how much that situation hurt the city. And, and, and we can discuss that. Uh, because I do think activism is, a, is, is an attractive part of Portland. I really do. Uh, and I think in, in the majority of instances, they were demonstrations, not riots. But they became political because of the images that were broadcast uh, across the world. It's disappointing to me to see that we're struggling so much to come back from all of that when we were poised to just go into the stratosphere in terms of, of reputation and investment before the pandemic hit and before the images of the riots hit the national airwaves. I want to get into that the last two years here in a minute. On our way there, we had a quick chat last week about doing this interview, and you brought up something that I found was just very interesting, just because it had never occurred to me. I was making the case that in general, Portland diversity isn't very well represented in the people we see on TV in Portland. And you told me that there were actually more black reporters and anchors on television back then when you started than there are today. Do you think there is a reason for that or do you think it's just coincidence? I don't think it's coincidence. I don't think that there is a a plan or a plot or anything like that. I really can't call why there are fewer African-American journalists or journalists of color on air now than there were back in the mid-1980s. I mean, I'll just throw a, a few names out there. I mean, we had Sharon Mitchell. We had Dick Bogle. 
We had Johnny Davis. Uh, there was a woman named Marlene McClinton. We had uh, a number of people who came through and stayed for a short amount of time. We had Ed Whalen in sports. A uh, number of people who came through, Ulysses Tucker uh, from D.C., who had a show over on uh, KPTV. I'm as much at a loss now as I was when I first started noticing this phenomenon. Obviously, it's disappointing, but I can't give you a real reason for it. You'd have to talk to, to the management of the news organizations to, to find out why that is the case. It may also be the case that, you know, for a lot of African-Americans who come to Portland from other places, and you know we have a somewhat nomadic business, that, uh, you know, Portland culturally was just not the place for them. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I saw uh, a number of people come and go over the course of the years. What I'm talking about is the people who managed to to stick around and have staying power mm -hmm. and be in this market for a number of years. Uh, and there were more of those people then than there are now. Do you feel there needs to be more black, brown, and Asian voices in the media, not just at the local level, but across the board? Definitely so. And not as window dressing. I'm talking about bringing perspectives and life experiences to newsrooms uh, where it's sometimes difficult to listen to what other people have to say because it might not be where your frame of reference is coming from. But I think it's important, especially when you talk about stories involving race or involving equity or uh, involving even violence, you know, that, that has a racial component. So I think you need those voices to bring perspective to a newsroom and to bring those kind of experiences to a newsroom because, you know, honestly, a lot of white folks don't understand it because they've never had to deal with it. Being able to be a voice for those types of issues and, and those types of experiences, I think, is very important in the newsroom, especially when you're covering stories that touch on those issues. Specifically, in reference to that perspective, in your time in Portland, do you remember a story or a theme of stories that stand out to you that like this was when I could provide my perspective to something that was very important. In the mid-1980s, we had an influx of uh, gangs from California. And there were people in the media who did not believe that Portland was becoming a destination for street gangs. They just couldn't believe it because you've got this beautiful environment and everybody's pretty much cool and you know, everybody's getting along for the most part. I mean, we've had our racial issues in Portland for a long time, even before the gang started moving in. So I don't want to whitewash that. But by the same token, when that dynamic started happening, it took people who were in the media. And I'm thinking of a photographer who went on to work for uh, CBS News, uh, African-American. His name was Morris Banks, uh, big guy. And he was very noticeable on the street. And we were talking about it. And he was saying, you know, people don't believe the gangs are moving in here. Morris took it upon himself to put himself on a night shift 
and go out and shoot visual evidence of gang activity. And he managed to uh, embed himself with a couple of the gangs, the Bloods specifically, and he brought that footage to us here at COIN and said, look at this. This is what's happening out here. If you're not connected to that community or if you're not in that neighborhood or all you're hearing is reports that somebody got shot or there was a drive-by, what's a drive-by? We don't know what that is. Well, Morris knew what it was and so did I. So if if you don't have that type of, of uh, I guess, knowledge, mm-hmm. just basic knowledge about the dynamics of, of these things, then you won't believe that they're happening until you see them with your own eyes. And that's what Morris was able to do. When we come back, more of my discussion with Ken Body, and we'll talk about the new show he's bringing to Coin6. The Coin6 weather team has the most accurate forecast in town, certified by WeatherRate. Coin6 weather, watching out for you. Hi, this is Jeff Giannola from Coin6 News, and I'd like to invite you to watch Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. It's our award-winning newscast one hour earlier at 10 o'clock. A full hour of the stories that are important to you and your family from the news team that's watching out for you. Plus, Portland's most accurate forecast certified by weather rate from Chief Meteorologist Natasha Stenbach. See why more people are switching to Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. Watching out for you. Ken, thanks for joining me this morning. I've got a couple more serious questions for you, and then we can get to fun and hijinks. I want to fast forward through your career a bit and get to some more recent headlines in your time in the anchor chair on Coin6 News this morning. And specifically, I want to talk to you about the fall of 2020. And that time as an anchor, you've got this front row seat, and we've talked about it a little bit, to what we now know were the beginning months of the pandemic. And Portland is caught in this seemingly never ending nightly violent protest cycle. And with all of that going on and everything you're talking about on the news every morning, you get a letter, a disgusting, hate-filled letter. Knowing what I know about some of the people who watch the news, sadly, I can't imagine this is the first letter like this you've received. But why did this one stand out? Well, it's good of you to point out that it wasn't the first, but it was the worst. This was uh, a pointed death threat, had the N-word all through it, said that I should be uh, hung by chains. Mm. Uh, it, it, it was just horrible. Uh, you can go online and find it if, if you want to. But in my mind, this was, okay, enough is enough. Uh, I can take this and just say, hey, well, it's just another hazard of being a, a black reporter in a mostly white city. But the the vitriol, the hate, and just the fact that someone will be bold enough to sit down and write a letter like that. And it was written over my bio that they had printed out from our website. It, it, it was a horrible thing. Now, I didn't realize at this point whether it was a real death threat or whether it was just someone acting out. 
or somebody with mental health issues. But the police got involved. They tried to investigate and find out where it came from. They were never able to. I didn't feel as if I was physically threatened, although the station did offer to provide me personal security during that time, which I declined because I didn't feel it was necessary. But I felt it was necessary for people to see it. I wanted people to know that being African-American in a city like Portland adds another layer of what could be stress to your life, Mm -hmm. that there are people out there who do not like you based upon your skin color alone. Now, if anybody had taken the time to maybe talk to me the way you're talking to me now, find out my background, find out where I came from, found out how I earned my way, and I want to emphasize that, earned my way to the position where I am now. Uh, I didn't take any shortcuts. I did everything by the book. For somebody to just send you a letter like that, threatening your life based upon the fact that you're a an African-American alone, I felt the greater community needed to know that. The letter started out with a line that said something like, I saw on the news a big smile when you said Trump lost. Well, I don't big smile for any stories (laughs) uh, involving uh, a serious subject like politics. And I'm definitely not going to be happy one way or another considering how Uh, this country, the state of this country right now is looking, uh, I'm not going to be smiling when I talk about winners and losers in in politics. It just, first of all, that wasn't true. That was that person's perception. But the fact that that's how the letter started out, and then it went into this death threat, and you should be wrapped in chains and hung and all of this stuff. I'm like, people need to know about this. This is not right. So, You, along with Coin Station Management, made the unusual decision to respond on air to that letter, generally something we don't do. Ken, I think a lot of us were raised with the idea that the best way to beat a bully is to ignore them. And you talked about it a little bit a minute ago, but why did you feel this was the right time in your career to respond to this letter? Because it wasn't the first. You said it was the worst. And what has been maybe the most surprising things to you about the reaction to your on-air response? Well, I, I just thought it was important that people know. And I and I built enough of a reputation in this town, and I've worked in this town long enough, where people do know me. They know me as a journalist. They know me as a person because, uh, you know, going back to what we were talking about in terms of my interest in music, I'm out and about, you know especially pre-pandemic. I'm, I'm, I'm seen. I talk to people. I go places. I do things. Uh, so I felt that coming out of my mouth at that time, they would realize that this is just not some guy complaining about something that's insignificant, that this was real. So I felt that was important to bring it out at that time. In, the, in terms of the manner in which I responded to it, As I said in my response, I was more sad that somebody would have enough hate in their heart to do something like that to somebody in the public eye. And that's just not regarding race. That's that's regarding civility, you know, regarding living in a society where you've got to live with other people. So that's why I felt it was important to to publicize that now. 
you asked me what surprised me about the response. I don't think I was as surprised as I was uh, heartened by the fact that so many people responded positively to that incident. I had people that I hadn't heard from in a long time who reached out to me and said, Ken, that was horrible what happened. We're glad that you you exposed that. And uh, it, it shows people that there is an undercurrent of racism here. And nobody can say that you brought that upon yourself. So I, uh, I, I was really heartened by the hundreds of people, um, literally hundreds of people who responded to that on my social media. We submitted that story, my response to uh, the Emmy organization, and that story actually won an Emmy. But I didn't do it for that. But that was one of the responses uh, that let me know that, yes, my experience hit a chord with some people. It actually caused people to think and caused people to react. Like we mentioned, and, and this is kind of building off what we talked about before, all of that happened in the first summer of the pandemic and these nightly protests here in Portland, which I want to go back to for a second. What was it like for you in that anchor chair every morning to be bringing people the news that the city you love, your home, was the scene of so much nightly violence and destruction? It was tough because I always kind of viewed myself as an ambassador for Portland. Whenever I go to different places, people would say, uh, before all this happened, man, you live in Portland. You're so lucky. I've heard so many great things about it. And I would tell people, yeah, all the great things you've heard about it are true and it's going to get even better. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, the pandemic hit and the, uh, uh, the unrest hit. I would go to different places and when I was able to travel to different places and people will say, what the heck is going on in Portland? You know, are you OK? Are you safe? And I would say, yes, I'm OK. I'm safe. Most of the destruction is within a four block area. Mm -hmm. But those are the images that you're seeing on TV every night. So you're thinking the whole town is up in flames. So I had to explain to people, no, that's not the case. And the images you're seeing, that's not the majority of people who are in downtown Portland. Uh, most of the demonstrations that happened were peaceful. And I know people on the other side say, yeah, sure, they, they were peaceful. Look at these pictures. Well, yeah, but we weren't showing the pictures. Uh, and when I say we, I, um, we did, but I'm, I'm thinking national media outlets are not showing the pictures of, say, the, the massive march, peaceful march across the Burnside Bridge where Damian Lillard was at the head of it. The peaceful demonstrations that happened at Revolution Hall during that period of time. Uh, everyone was concentrated on the heat, and the heat was in front of the Justice Center and the federal courthouse. It's going to take a lot to get away from people's impressions based upon those images uh, and also, I mean, we were right in the middle of this political tug of war where uh, our former President Trump sent in the feds. Mm -hmm. And we can still debate whether or not that helped the problem or exacerbated the problem. I think there's still a misconception, especially in places that aren't Portland, that all of those protests were the result of the Black Lives Matter movement 
We know that is absolutely not the case. And you mentioned it a while ago in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Jacob Blake. Portland was home to some of the biggest, loudest and most peaceful Black Lives Matter marches in the country. We saw these incredible images of unity. You talked about Damian Lillard leading one of the marches across one of the bridges and these images of compassion as thousands of people marched day after day. Did that part of it make you proud? I think so. Because Portland has been known for activism for a long, long time. We've seen the uh, WTO demonstrations. You know, we've seen Occupy Portland, which was one of the biggest Occupy movements in America after the one on Wall Street. Uh, and eventually it became bigger than the one on Wall Street where it started. So it's not as if Portland hasn't had a reputation as an activist city uh, for decades. Uh, so to me, it was not surprising that we were the number one city in America to protest after the George Floyd situation. But it, it kind of surprised me that so many people were surprised by it. <laughs> so we can't really have the discussion about the violence in Portland and the protests without crossing over into politics. Sure. And as a way of promoting a pretty cool thing you were a part of here at COIN, what can you tell me about the new show you are hosting? What are you hoping to do with it? And when will it debut? Well, the show is going to be called Eye on Northwest Politics. It'll debut on uh, December 5th, Sunday, December 5th, uh, during the uh, 6 o'clock news hour. What I want to do is to have discussions with policymakers and people. And I want those discussions to be shedding light on situations as opposed to just generating more heat. And I know that that will be difficult to do in these polarizing times. Uh, but I'm going to try to do my best as a host to keep people on track. And also, let's talk things out. Let's understand what people's positions are. Now, there will be some cases where there will be panels or there will be point counterpoints. But I would like to be able to sit down and have long conversations with people individually. I want to be able to sit down and talk to you and, and, and say, yes, there might be a lot of people who disagree with you, but do they really understand your position? I want to get people to understand where other folks are coming from. I think that's going to be really important in these polarizing times, uh, that there be a voice. I don't want to call myself the voice of reason, you know, because I have my own issues. You know, we can talk about those later. <laughs> but I, I think as a journalist, I've, I've gained enough experience and and gained enough uh, credibility and, and confidence in, in talking to all sectors of this society where I think that I can get closer to achieving that goal of bringing bringing light instead of bringing heat. We talked a little bit ago about perspective and the perspective you bring as a black man and as a black journalist to the stories you cover. Are you hoping to bring some of that perspective to this new show too? Absolutely. I don't think I can divorce being a television host from my life experience. Fortunately, uh, it's been diverse enough where I, I think I can understand most reasonable positions. And I emphasize I can understand most reasonable positions. Uh, when things get unreasonable, I think I just have to call it the way I see it. 
and just let the chips fall where they may. Because sometimes you got to call it for what it is if it's uh, to use the initials BS. I would not say that entire word on the air, <laughs> but I might use the initials once or twice in the course of conversations if it gets to that point. I don't think that's there's anything wrong with calling BS BS <laughs> when it's actually BS. <laughs> Uh, all right. I'm going to hit you with a couple rapid fire questions here. See if we can have a little bit of fun. Ken body walks into a jazz club. What's the first drink he's going to order? I am going to order a beautiful. Now you may ask me, what is a beautiful? <laughs> I did. I, I thought there was more coming to that answer. It's just a beautiful. The drink is called a beautiful and it is uh 50% cognac and 50% Grand Marnier. And it is tasty, it is powerful, and uh, it will get you in the right mood to listen to some great music. Uh, I asked you what the first drink was going to be. I couldn't have more than one of those <laughs> and still be paying attention your to the music. Your first drink would be your last drink, maybe. Yes, uh, well, yes. maybe, you know, water after that. Water after that. Uh, if you hadn't grown up in Portland, where do you think you'd be? Or if you hadn't made it to Portland, where do you think you'd be? If I hadn't made it to Portland, where do I think I'd be? I would be somewhere warm because growing up in upstate New York <laughs> and being the only boy in my family who was the designated shoveler oh, of yeah. all the snow and the lake effect snow that you get in upstate New York. I grew up on Lake Ontario. Lake Erie was right there. You know, Rochester is not too far from Buffalo, which is notorious for having <laughs> awful winters. Uh I think having been to the number of places that I've been to over the years, if I weren't in Portland, I'd probably be in San Diego. Don't have to shovel sunshine. Yeah, absolutely. Of all the weird things we get to talk about and report on and see in this city, what's your favorite? That is an excellent question. For me, the most fun stories are the stories that reinforce that keep Portland weird vibe. Mm-hmm. You know, so anytime I get to talk to Darcel or the Unipiper, you know, even former mayor Bud Clark, uh, I always enjoy talking to those folks. I know you like sports and I know you like basketball. I'm willing to get into a hot take debate with you here. Is Damon Lillard the best player to ever put on a Portland Trailblazers uniform? That is tough because Damian's career is still unfolding before us. I would have to say from my perspective, he's right up there with Clyde Drexler, mm -hmm. Clyde the Glide, not only because of his uh, prolific nature on the court, but also now that Dane's been in the league a few years, his longevity. Mm -hmm. Bill Walton would be right below that, but Bill's career didn't last very long because of injury. So uh, I would, in, in terms of, of talent and being able to elevate a team to the next level. Uh, Bill Walton was up there, but his knees just didn't contribute to him having a long career here. So I would I, I would say uh, he's right up there. Dame is right up there with Clyde Drexler. But there have been some great, great Blazers over the years. You talk about, uh, you know, Jeff Petrie. You know, we mentioned Walton, uh, Maurice Lucas, Jerome Kersey, Terry Porter, who's still here in Portland. There have been some great, great players in Portland over the years. Sidney Wicks, a lot of people didn't like Sidney's defense, but man, that guy could put the ball in the hole. Uh, you know, there, there have been some great Blazers. What will retirement look like for you? I'm hoping that the pandemic will be over and that retirement would involve uh, travel. 
I, I like seeing new places. I, I When I turned 50, which was a number of years ago, <laughs> uh, I said that every year from now to the end of my life, I want to go somewhere or do something that I've never gone or done before. And I have managed to do that even during the pandemic. I've, I've managed to do that, and I want to continue to do that. There are some places in the world that I haven't seen that I want to see. I've never been to Asia. I want to go there. I want to go where uh, the language is uh, hard for me to even comprehend. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I want to do that. It would involve travel and basically just uh, enjoying life around here, you know, to explore more of Oregon that I haven't been able to explore uh, just because I haven't had the, the time to do it. Ken Body, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was fun. So, Emily, usually when we do these six questions podcasts, we've set out to talk to some of the bigger names in Portland. Not that Ken's not a big name in Portland, but for the most part, those conversations are the first time we meet those people. Yeah. This was a chance for me to talk to somebody not only have I met before, but I spent a lot of time, a lot of long nights and early mornings working with for several years. Mm -hmm. I remember the first time I met Ken. You know, he's kind of this presence, for lack of a better term. Oh, he's, sure. He's obviously one of the more recognizable faces on the Coin6 News team, but he's also one of the more recognizable voices in our leadership, mm -hmm. more in, in our editorial decision making. And I knew right away that he was somebody that I could bounce news ideas off of. And we may not agree on how to go about doing things, but I could trust that the advice he was giving me and the opinion he was giving me was based in sound logic and had very good journalistic integrity behind it. Right, right. Yeah, he's, uh, I mean, aside from being a commanding presence in the newsroom, you know, he's he's tall, he's got the voice <laughs> that you recognize instantly. Uh, you know, he is such uh, a force in in Portland in the community. I mean, arguably, you know, when we when we look at this podcast and, and talking with notable people in this city, uh, he's right up there at the top of the list. And we just so happen to see him every day. <laughs> you know, it's funny when I first came to Portland before I'd actually moved here, I I took a job as a reporter at Coin, sight unseen. I had a Skype interview back before we did that every day, and I came out here for one weekend. Um, after already signing a contract to meet some of my coworkers and find a place to live. And I got in an Uber to go look at an apartment over in Selwood. And I was talking to the Uber driver. He you know, asked, well, where are you from? Why are you here? And I told him, well, I'm, I'm moving here from Florida. I, I just started uh, working at Coin News. First thing out of his mouth, Coin Oh, Ken body. You're going to work with Ken. <laughs> I mean, he was so excited. He couldn't believe it. And so that was, you know, that was my first impression before I'd ever met Ken. Uh, you know, this was someone who people have looked up to in this city for years and, and still do. Um, so it's it's kind of it's just funny to think back to that moment a few years ago and, and to now be sitting with him every morning, uh, you know, starting our day with people all around the metro. It, it, it is kind of a pinch me moment sometimes still, you know. <laughs> and now, as you heard at the end of the interview there, here's this new show mm -hmm. at a time that I think Portland needs a very 
hard, deep look at the way, I mean, for lack of a better term, at the way we're behaving and why we're behaving the way we are. And I have been pretty vocal in this building and outside this building saying that kind of show needs a place on coin. And that's the guy to host it Mm -hmm. because it is a perspective and a, as you heard him mention, a perspective that we generally don't get in media around here that he's going to be able to provide in these discussions that I'm really looking forward to hearing. Yeah. One of the things that I think we've heard from our viewers and our listeners is people want context. They want explanation right now. They want information. They don't want to glaze over important issues. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, we're going to do with this new program. I can't think of a better person at the helm mm-hmm. than Ken, you know, to to bring that insight, that perspective, uh, that context that we really need right now. And to know that you're getting that information from someone who really knows what they're talking about and is is coming at it with the, the best journalistic lens. Once again, that is I on Northwest Policy. Politics. It debuts this Sunday. Help me out here, Emily, December 5th. Uh, December 4th on Portland CW in the morning and December 5th, Sunday evening on COIN. Part of the COIN 6 news at 6 on Sundays. What are you going to do this weekend? Uh, I, so I'm actually headed to Nashville this weekend. Uh, I've got a friend's wedding. Uh, it was a pandemic reschedule. So, you know, nice December wedding because it's not busy at all right now. But Mm-mm. no, this is a, a group of friends from my previous TV market that I have not seen in several years. So not only is it going to be a really great opportunity to get together with all of them, it's just nice to come together for fun stuff right now. Mm-hmm. What's in store for you this weekend? Um, Get a Christmas tree. Nice. Uh, that'll be that'll be the Sunday uh, event and get it decorated Sunday afternoon and evening. That'll be the plan there. Um, Saturday, uh, an annual ritual all Oregon homeowners are familiar with onto the roof to get rid of the moss and get the gutters cleaned before oh boy. everything goes haywire here in a couple weeks. But if this weather sticks around, I don't know. I might be up there in shorts. Yeah. Have fun in Nashville. <laughs> Have fun with your gutters. The COIN Podcast Network is your home for on-demand coverage of local news, sports, weather, and entertainment you won't find anywhere else. You can always find us on COIN.com slash podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.